I wonder what you think about when you hear the word discipline. Maybe you think of a marathon runner who spends months in preparation, eating well, doing their stretches, going on their practice runs, lots of discipline, all with the intention of being ready for their big day. Maybe you think of someone in the military, uh, the kind of life that they have to live to be ready for war. Or maybe you think of a scary teacher. Uh, those of you who are old enough to remember that getting the belt or the cane, uh, maybe the word discipline, is, uh, th this evokes uh, the word uh, discipline to you. And just in case anyone's wondering, I was not old enough to have the belt or the cane. Well, we're not going to be thinking about these uh, forms of discipline this morning. Uh, we're going to be thinking instead about something called church discipline. Uh, when I preached in September, we looked at the subject of church membership, how people join the church and how they uh, function in the church family. Now, although as Christians we have been set free from the penalty of sin through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we have to admit that we still experience the presence of sin. We still hurt each other. Uh, we still need to seek forgiveness. And from time to time, we come across cases of serious, public, unrepentant sin. And there have been a number of high-profile moral failings and spiritual failings reported in the Christian media recently, both here in the UK and also overseas. So what do we do when we're faced with serious, public, unrepentant sin in the church? Well, the, the way that we deal with such sin is through church discipline. Church discipline is part of the discipleship process, the part where we correct sin in our fellow church members and help them move forward in a better direction. This is something that the Christchurch Queensbury launch team have been thinking about as we uh, get ready to uh, start a new church and, and build it on good foundations. And so Paul has asked me to speak on this topic this morning. Paul is ill and we'll be going back to the Roman series uh, next week. Uh, but we're going to think this morning about uh, church discipline. And so what does the Bible have to say about this subject? Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at that together. That's on page 1147 in the church Bibles. First Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll read just from verse 21 of uh, chapter 4, just, just above it there. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? It is actually reported amongst you, actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. 
So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we ask now that you would strengthen us with your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work through it now as it is preached to us, that it would keep us from deceitful ways. May we hear your voice speak to us and uh, into whatever situation we find ourselves in. We ask this so that we may run with perseverance the race marked out for us with our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this passage, we are faced with a very serious case of sexual sin. And really, it's been allowed to happen in the church of Corinth because the church of Corinth was imitating the city of Corinth. Corinth, the city, had a reputation for being sexually immoral, for being corrupt, And sadly, the church was no different. They were immature disciples who didn't understand the importance of correcting sin. In other words, they didn't understand the importance of church discipline. This morning, we're going to see from our passage that church discipline is, in fact, a really good thing. And I want to pick out three ways this morning in which church discipline is good. And the first one is this. Church discipline is good for the unrepentant sinner. We see that in verses 1 to 5. The unrepentant sin is there uh, in verse 1. A man is having sexual relations with his father's wife. Probably not his his mom, probably his uh, stepmom. And this is wrong. Uh, This is against the Bible's teaching on sexual relationships. The Bible teaches that sex is only for one man and one woman within the bounds of the marriage relationship. So what this man was doing was sinful. In fact, verse 1 says it was so sinful that not even the pagans tolerated this kind of sinful behavior. It's like Paul saying, the world doesn't even sin like this. The problem is that the Corinthian church was an arrogant church a proud church, and an immature church. And this is a repeated theme throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. 
And their pride shows itself in this situation in the way that they are tolerating this man's sin. They've done nothing to respond to the sin in front of them. But the question is, how should they have responded? Well, Paul makes that very clear in verse 2. Have a look with me at verse 2. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? And he repeats the same idea at the end of the passage in verse 13. He says, expel the wicked person from among you. You see, the Corinthian church should have been sorrowful over this man's sin, not smug. They should have been grieving, not grinning. They should have had hearts that are full of pain, not hearts that are full of pride. They should have been so deeply affected, so mournful about this public, serious, unrepentant sin in their fellowship that they should have put the man out of the fellowship. Or to use a word that we sometimes use in church, they should have excommunicated him. They should have expelled him. They should have excluded him. But you might ask the question, why? Why should they do that? Well, because his decision to sleep with his dad's wife makes his decision to follow Jesus sound like a big joke. He might have said he was a believer, but that's not matched by his behavior. He might claim to be a Christian, but based on the evidence, that claim is not credible. Verse 1 starts off, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. This sin was in the public sphere. It was well known. And this man was unrepentant. He's been allowed to continue being part of the church family. And the best thing that you can do with someone in that situation is to follow through with church discipline. That's what Paul's getting at in verses 3 to 5. He says, For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying that although I'm not physically there in Corinth with you, my mind is made up about this man. And I want you to think similarly. This man needs to be handed over to Satan. It's very strong language, isn't it? It's shocking in many ways to see this in black and white. To hand him over to Satan. What does that mean? It means to treat him as someone who no longer belongs to the church. It's another way of saying treat him as an unbeliever. I said in my last talk on church membership that every gospel preaching church is like a little embassy of the kingdom of God. Everyone who has turned from their sin and is trusting in the Lord Jesus alone is in the kingdom of God. And it follows that everyone else is in the kingdom of Satan. It's that straightforward. There's no point in messing people about. And that would be the same for anyone here this morning who isn't trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no point in beating around the bush. There's the kingdom of Satan 
and there's a kingdom of God. And Paul's point is that this man's sin is so serious and public and he's so unrepentant that the church in Corinth can't keep affirming that this man is a Christian by keeping him in the fellowship. The best thing that they can do is to treat this man as an unbeliever. They need to remove him from the church. They need to hand him over to Satan. Now this is weighty stuff. This is sobering stuff. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 5 is not the sort of thing that you write on a new church member's card. I, I, know, I don't know if you noticed, but that, this verse wasn't on any of the cards that I read out there. Okay, it's not one of those verses. Nobody would do that to a new member. It's, it's, this is heavy stuff. We're in at the deep end here of what it means to be a church family. What it means to be a little embassy of the kingdom of God. But can I tell you something incredible about this verse and about this sentiment? It's for the man's good. It's for his good. Did you notice that verse 5 doesn't end at the, the handing of man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? No, the reason you hand someone over is there at the end of verse 5. Here's the reason. Look with me at the, the end of verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The whole purpose of church discipline is captured in those last 13 words of verse 5. You see, church discipline is meant to be restorative. Church discipline is not about writing people off. We're not saying this person is definitely not a Christian and he's definitely going to hell. God only knows people's hearts. God only knows the people that are truly his. Church discipline is about restoration. It's for the man's good. It's so that he'll be saved on the day of the Lord. We used to live near a, a, a shop, a kind of showroom called uh, Holyrood Architectural Salvage. It's a fascinating place. It's full of old fireplaces and doors and brass handles and uh, radiators and pews. I even saw a pulpit there once. These things have all been removed from people's homes. But removing these things from people's homes is not the end of the story for these items. The folk at Holyrood Architectural Salvage uh, strip these things down, they build them back up, they renew them, they repurpose them, and they're restored. And similarly, removing people from membership who are in serious, public, unrepentant sin is meant to be restorative. Removing someone from membership is meant to give the person the shock of their life. It's meant to have the same effect as a slap in the face or plunging them into a bath of ice. It's meant to have that shock factor so that they confess their sin and so that they seek help. That they would be stripped down, laid bare their hearts before God, built back up in the faith, renewed, repurposed, restored, and ultimately saved. And that can be a messy business. It can be a painful business. There might be loss and embarrassment in this life, but it's for the person's ultimate good that their spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. When we tolerate sin, we do sinners no favors. We remove someone from membership and exclude them from taking communion in the hope that it brings them back to their senses. It's for their good. This doesn't mean that they're not welcome to attend a gospel preaching church. 
We want the person to attend and hear the weekly preaching of God's word, just as we would want an unbeliever to do. We also want to persuade the excommunicated person to repent. But it does, however, mean that we don't treat the person casually in a way that would suggest they've done nothing wrong. And all of this is for their good. And as well as being good for the person caught up in the sin, it's also a good thing for the rest of the church family. Church discipline is good for the church family. We see this in verses 6 to 8, where Paul turns his attention to the church and explains how church discipline is good for the church family. And he does this using Passover language. At Passover each year, the Jews remembered how God had delivered them from captivity in Egypt. And one of the tasks in the run-up to the Passover celebrations was to destroy all the yeast. They were to do this before the Passover lamb was offered at the temple. And Paul likens the effect that a little bit of yeast has on a whole batch of dough with the effect that this man's sin has on the whole church. Just like a little bit of yeast affects the whole batch of dough, so one person's sin affects the whole church family. Church discipline is necessary for the good of the church because sin left unchallenged spreads throughout the church. It creates a copycat effect where members see other members sin without any repercussions and so they commit the same sins. If so-and-so's getting away with that, why, why, why can't I do it? Or maybe they just find their own ways to sin without any fear of anything being done to stop them. Paul is calling the Corinthians for the good of their church family not to compromise by allowing this one man's sin to remain in the church family. They'd be sending out mixed messages if they did. Jesus Christ, the new Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The one who is the lamb without blemish or spot. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the new Christian community that has emerged since Jesus' death and resurrection is not to compromise with sin. Not to let it spread throughout their community. Instead, they are to remove sin from the church for the good of the church family. As we gather each week to celebrate Christ delivering us from our sins, we have to do so without hypocrisy. Saying one thing, but living entirely differently. Now, of course we all sin. Of course we all need cleansing. None of us will live perfectly holy lives until Jesus comes back. But we've got to be ruthless with sin. We've got to confess sin in our own lives. And we've got to confront sin in the lives of others. Paul's encouragement at the end of verse 8 is that we will not live with malice and wickedness. But with sincerity and with truth. Now, one of the dangers of Paul's teaching is that it could lead us to think that the best thing that we can do in the circumstances is to retreat from the world so that we don't get tainted by the sin of the world. We might think the best thing to do is to become hermits, go and live on an island on our own, to withdraw from people. But Paul teaches that that is not what he intends. We see that in verses 9 to 13. Verses 9 to 13 show us that church discipline is good for an unbelieving world. 
in verses 9 to 13, it's clear that Paul has written to the Corinthians to tell them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But it looks like there's been some confusion about who Paul was talking about. And verses 10 and 11 clear things up for them, up for us and up for them. Verse 10 says that he was not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. And in fact, he, he emphasizes this at the end of verse 10 uh, when he says that you'd have to leave the world to do that. There's, there's no way you can't mix with people in the world who are all these things. But rather in verse 11, he says, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. He's not talking about staying away from sexually immoral people in the world. He was telling them not to associate with sexually immoral people in the church. The people Paul was talking about here are those people who claim to be Christians, but who are living like they aren't. That's who the church is to stay away from. They're not even to eat with them. And this is good for the unbelieving world that we live in. Church discipline helps to preserve the distinctiveness of the church. Jesus calls the church to be salt, and he calls the church to be light. So this assumes that we're distinct, but at the same time at work in the world, involved in the world. But if the salt loses its saltiness, Jesus said, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Churches that fail to practice church discipline are like salt that has uh, lost its saltiness. They're good for nothing. They're unattractive. They've lost their distinctiveness. They do no good at all. We can't call our fellow members to repent of their sins. We can't, sorry, we can't call our members to repent of their sins. If we can't call our fellow members to repent of their sins, then what right do we have to call unbelievers in our community to repent of their sins? Let me say that again. If we can't call our fellow members to repent of their sins, what right have we to call unbelievers in the community outside our church to repent of our sins? Paul says, don't associate with so-called Christians who are sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, but he makes no such rule against associating with unbelievers. In fact, in verses 12 to 13, uh, he warns us against having such an, a judgmental attitude towards those that are not Christians. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Our Lord Jesus ate with sinners, people deemed beyond saving. And so, we can do this too as we go about making disciples. This is good for our family and our friends who are not following Jesus. There's nothing more damaging in evangelism than uh, holding unbelievers at arm's length uh, but getting up close and personal with unrepentant sinners who claim to be Christians. A church like that has nothing to offer. It has no distinctiveness. But a church that practices church discipline is good for an unbelieving world. Such a church draws clear lines around what it means to be part of the church. Who is in the church and who is not in the church? Who is in the church and who has been removed from the church? A church like that shows that it takes sin seriously 
while at the same time it extends grace to sinners because each member knows that they did nothing to save themselves but received their salvation by grace alone through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a church that does that offers hope. It offers the hope of the gospel rather than judgment to those outside the church as we remember that it's God's job and God's job alone to judge those outside the church. So, as we think about this passage, what does that mean for us here in Charlotte Chapel? How can we apply what this passage teaches to our situation here in Edinburgh in 2019? The truth is, in the chapel, church discipline is happening all the time. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 isn't the only type of church discipline. There are two aspects to church discipline. There's formative church discipline and there's corrective church discipline. And what this passage that we've looked at this morning is describing is the very extreme end of corrective church discipline. Excommunication, the very far end of corrective church discipline. But formative church discipline is happening all the time. Formative church discipline is things like teaching and preaching, and being in uh, relationships where you're accountable to people, um, being part of a small group, uh, gathering for corp- corporate worship, things like that. These are parts of our discipleship which form us and shape us as Christians and strengthen us to serve God. Formative church discipline should help prevent the sorts of things that lead to corrective church discipline. If we were to compare compare these two types of discipline to um, taking care of our teeth, formative discipline is like brushing your teeth and flossing and uh, not taking in too much sugar and uh, getting the right amount of calcium. Things that help our teeth grow healthy and stay healthy. Corrective church discipline is a bit more like dental surgery. It corrects something that has gone wrong, or in the worst case, cases, removal is required. So let me ask you the question this morning. How, how is it going with um, the formative church discipline that you're involved in? Teaching, gathering, small groups, one-to-ones, your own personal devotions with God. Are you placing a high level of importance on these things? Are they a priority for you? Do you recognize them as God's ordinary means to help you grow and to stay healthy in your walk with God? I know that for many of us, it's not easy to open up with other people. I know that. But accountability relationships of some kind can go a long way towards preventing the problems associated with unrepentant sin. James chapter 5 says that, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We all sin. I know that's not a novel idea for any of you to hear. But growing Christians invite other Christians into their life for the purpose of confessing sin. It brings our sins into the light where they can be dealt with in the context of loving friendships that strengthen us through prayer and strengthen us through encouragement 
and strengthen us by applying the Bible to our lives. You see, sin needs darkness to flourish. It needs people to isolate themselves. It needs people to think that they're strong and they're self-sufficient and they can do it all by themselves. But when we confess our sins, we realize that we're not alone in our struggles and we open ourselves up to the protective rebukes and loving corrections that steer us back from uh, habitual sins and from destructive tendencies. And I'm sure that we'd all agree that even though it might be hard to open up in this way, confessing sin in the context of loving, uh, personal accountability friendships helps to prevent us, um, helps to prevent the sins that we're struggling with just now and becoming scandalous sins later on. Jesus said that all men will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. And Paul said that the church is an integrated body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament that grows its and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Relationships within the church are ligaments that support the growth of each church member. The church needs to be a, a web or a network of meaningful spiritual relationships which help us in our fight against sin. This formative church discipline, this loving encouragement in each other's spiritual lives makes corrective church discipline more fruitful. You see, without the context of meaningful spiritual relationships that are happening all the time, when it comes to dealing with corrective church discipline, that can feel very harsh. There's no relationship in place already. But corrective church discipline works well when we have these ongoing formative relationships. It will come across as tough love. It will come across as the responsible outworking of love and concern for another person's spiritual good. You might be offended initially, but you know this person loves you and you know that they've got your best interests at heart. And so you take what they're saying on board. Church discipline is a good thing. It's good for unrepentant sinners. It's good for the church family. It's good for the unbelieving world round about us that are watching on. And so much of what they see in the church today can come across as hypocritical. We don't want to be a church like that. To cut corners on things like formative church discipline and corrective discipline damages the witness of the church and the purity of the church. Remember, it's the church that Paul holds responsible in this passage for dealing with the man's sin. It's the church, the whole church. It's the church that's the final form in Matthew 18 where uh, there's steps laid out for dealing with a brother who sins against you that kind of escalates and is ultimately taken to the church. It's the church that's responsible. Fighting sin and protecting the name of Jesus is all of our responsibility. And so may God help us to keep cultivating trust and honesty with one another about our sin. And may we be patient when people misunderstand us or when they wrong us. And may God help us to keep trusting that Jesus will build his church through the power of his word.
Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that more often than not, we'd rather have easy conversations than point out other people's sin. We'd rather have easy conversations and not have our own sin pointed out as well. We'd rather speak about trivial things than speak the words of truth into each other's lives. Lord God, would you help us to care less about what people think about us And would you help us to care more about people's souls? Would you give us such a passion for your reputation in this world that we will fight sin in our own lives and in love help others in our church family to do the same? Lord, would you please purify us and refine us as individuals and as a church? Cause us to live distinctive lives that attract people to the salvation that's available through your Son. And we ask this, that you might get all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.